0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice. Now, if you are listening to this, and it is New Year, we would like to wish you a very happy New Year. If you are getting on the bandwagon really quickly, right when the episode goes out, it won't be quite that time yet. So we would like to wish you a happy New Year in advance. Welcome to 2018, and Cast Dice is a podcast where we look at the state of gaming in the world, I guess, right now. Um, as I've said before on this podcast, we're, we're going through a bit of a gaming renaissance. There are so many good games out to play at the moment. Board games, tabletop, war games, role-playing games, video games, 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 games. All of them are good. It's like we've learned from our mistakes of the past, and the gaming industry as a whole has taken a giant leap forward. Um, So the purpose of this podcast is to talk about what's going on in the gaming industry, talk about um, specific games or aspects of gaming, and today will be one of those episodes where we talk about an important part of gaming, a social aspect, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. My name is Old Man Moran, also known as Brad, and I would like to introduce our panel for this episode. Uh, you would know him from other podcasts that I've done in the past. He is one of my favorite guests to have on. He is the tournament organizer of the largest bolt action event in the Southern Hemisphere. He is a man who loves a good themed army. And God, gotta love a guy who loves G.I. Joe as much as I do. Peter West, welcome back to Cast Dice.
1: night, Brad. <laughs>
0: It is awesome having you back on, brother. Um, Now, uh, we will talk about Christmas gifts and, uh, you know, purchasing since last episode in a second, but I also need to introduce a second guest. Now, as if Peter wasn't enough, we have to have a second T.O. on for this episode. You would know his dulcet tones from a podcast, a podcast that I'm a big fan of and have talked about through my Facebook page in the past a Malifaux podcast called Unfo faux F-A-U-X, Cast. Um, you would also know him as the tournament organizer of one of, well, I guess Malifaux's largest event in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's, it's, now it's hard to say the name of this event unless you say what the name of his club is. And that would be, his original gaming group is The Wargaming A-Team. So, that in mind, and this is a family-friendly show, um, the name of this lovely gentleman's tournament is Twatafo, and, of course, you gotta say his name right, Mouse, welcome to the cast. How you doing, buddy? Oh, man, it's awesome having you on. It's great to actually be able to talk to you and, you know, to hear your voice and talk back, if that makes sense. As a fan of your podcast, I yell at you on... You know, like, no, I don't. I don't agree. I do agree. Oh, that's great. And to actually have you say, you shut up, Brad. You're being silly. It's it's nice.
2: Yeah. No, I can tell you you're wrong in person now. This is great.
0: (laughs) Well, a lot of people do. It's okay. (laughs) Pete does all the time. Isn't that right, Pete? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Well, gentlemen, before we get to our main topic tonight, let's actually uh, let's see. Let's see how things are going. Now, Peter and I talked about things that we were looking forward to in 2018 and things that looked really exciting for 2017 uh, in episode, what was it, five? Um, This being episode seven, I thought it would be a good idea to maybe revisit that first. So, Pete, I hear you hate me. Why?
1: (laughs) Well, so many reasons, Brad. But, you know, this one in particular is that um, after our last discussion, um, I... uh, finally gave in and went out and ordered Test of Honour just before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And um, it arrived in time to be part of the Christmas pile. So I'm staring at um, the Test of Honour core box and a couple of uh, extra boxes to go with it there. So, yeah, I I thought following our last conversation just sort of pushed me over the edge. And, uh, yeah, I've I've gone in and we'll see how it goes.
0: Now, Mouse, if you're not aware of Test of Honor, it is Warlord Games, makers of uh, Bolt Action and other fine game systems. Um, it's mm-hmm. their samurai game. So uh, it is historically minded. Um, yep. And it uses... So Warlord bought um, Wargame Factory's plastics, and they use those as the plastics in the box set. So I'm not a... I'll be completely honest. I'm not a massive fan of those models, But um, the rules are quite good. Um, And uh, adding to that, they've been adding new metal models to their range, which are sensational. Um, They actually just broke their cardinal rule. um, And they they said, well, we're never going to do ninjas because they're not historically accurate. It's ridiculous, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then enough people harassed them over time that they finally did ninjas. And um, being a nerd and a G.I. Joe fan from the 80s, I, of course, bought the Ninjas, which makes me a terrible yep. person. Uh, Pete, which which warbands did you go for?
1: So I went with the Masked Men and the uh, Retinue, the um, Dynamo's Retinue. Um, nice. So, yeah, they both look very nice. And yeah, my concern with the game was partly the plastics, as you mentioned. Mm. But I'm also not a huge fan of unit cards, but... Um, everything I've heard about the rules are they're nice and clean and um, fun to play and I think ultimately I'll probably swap out um, some of the plastics for uh, some of the many varied ranges that are out there at the moment I mean there has actually really been an explosion of uh, samurai and samurai um, era models and there's just a lot of great options so I'll get started with the plastics and I'll probably start swapping them out at some point and uh, for some for some medals, both warlord and others.
0: Yeah, though the Perry ones, of course, are the classic, beautiful, awesome samurai models, and the warlord new medals are fantastic. Uh, Mouse, you're you're samurai curious. Um, what what sort of samurai models have you been looking at? Because I know you've looked at some in the past.
2: Oh, look, there's there's that many out there, as, as you're saying, and there's kind of been an explosion of them. So, I mean, there's uh, – playing Malifaux a lot, there's there's obviously the 10th Thunder faction in there. That's right. But um, I, I think the second you get a game that is um, the Bushido range, uh, like, yep. which are pretty much standard, that entire – you know, the whole thing is that kind of Asian samurai uh, influence thing, and some of those are really pretty models. Um, mm-hmm. you know, arguably, disappointingly metal, but um, – I just like the, the ease of plastic. I'm getting lazy in my old age. Yeah. Um, but I think the second you get, you know, the likes of the Bushido, uh, this coming out um, and some know, things like Saga coming out as well, yes. there's just going to be more plastics available. Um, that are just They're, they're going to have to raise the bar. So I think this is going to be a good year for uh, the Samurai model.
0: Agreed. Now, I'm I yeah. curious. You were saying, um, you mentioned Saga, and we know that Saga is going to come out with samurai rules and some more fantasy-based stuff. Um, With that, are they going to come out with their own models, or are they sort of depending on other model ranges? Do you know?
2: Um, Not firsthand. Uh, Traditionally, they've sort of always relied on third parties. Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to see what they do, but I think the other half of the, the puzzle there is the fact that Um, the second they start supporting something, you get things like fire forge games and like start, you know, bringing out models and Mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of that kind of stuff. Um, and the fact that a lot of the second ed saga stuff, I think it's second ed, um, are sort of doing a a fantasy, um, you know, sort of myth and legend themed option as well, Mm -hmm. which gives you even more scope to just pull out awesome models from other ranges. So it'll be interesting to see whether they let the two play together. Mm. Um,
1: Oh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, say. yeah I, pe- I like the fantasy. Yeah, I like the fantasy angle. I mean, one of the ranges I'm looking at to play with for Test of Honor is um, a range from Eureka called Pond Wars,
0: mm-hmm. where they have
1: a uh, samurai rabbits and nice. uh, turtle spearman. So you know, just something to mix it up and make it that bit much more fun and interesting.
0: Yeah, Kings of War did. Uh, I mean, Kings of War, of course, is a fantasy game system, uh, a rank and flank game akin to old Warhammer fantasy. Um, and in a way it kind of replaced that for a lot of people. Um, but they came out with a historical range, um, that is done quite well or historical rules, I should say, because they of course just say, use whatever models you want. Um, and they, they put something ridiculous. I forget how many fan, I'm sorry, not even fantasy historical armies. They put in their army book. It's ridiculous. It's like 30 army lists are built into the book. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting about that is that they allow you to play. They don't necessarily recommend for tournament play that historical and fantasy armies can play off one another. But the game is—you it, it, absolutely can, and I know lots of people that do. Um, friend of the show, Patch, was playing in a King's War event in Canberra yesterday— Uh, And one of his games, he played against Mongolians. And in the game after that, I think he was playing against maybe orcs and goblins or uh, demons or something. And you just go, well, that's really interesting that you're getting that mix um, in an event. And I think it would be interesting to see that on a smaller scale with Saga. Uh, It will be interesting to see if they allowed them to play against one another. Um, Mouse, do you have anything you want to add to that? Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm sort of throwing it to a name so we're not talking over one another.
2: Nah, easy done. No, that's that's exactly it. I think and it's going to be from all rumours uh, pretty much the same deal where you can the, you know it's the same rule set effectively. Um so you can mix and match. It's just going to be whether tournaments want to allow that. I, I think you'll see a mix of um you know your uh, historical sort of more purist events where they want to keep everything like that, but then ones that throw it open to everything. Um and you will get, you know, your um you know Greek titans and stuff hitting off mm. against uh, you know, the English Danes and stuff.
0: That'll be awesome. Pete, what do you think?
1: Well, as I indicated, I I do like to mix the fantasy elements in. I just think it brings a bit of extra flavour, brings a little bit of extra fun. I know that um, certainly in games like Bolt Action, um, people feel really strongly about it, and so you've got to take that into account. But as long as you're using the... You got compatible rules, or you're just using proxies? I think that normally most people are quite happy to see a bit of flavor and a bit of fun.
0: Yeah, agreed, agreed, absolutely. Now I want to go back to something you said earlier, Mouse. You were talking about um, being in your old age, relying happily on plastics rather than metals. Uh, I'm not sure about you, Pete, but I'm the exact <laughs> opposite. Um, I I loved GW plastics in uh, in the the fourth, fifth ed. Era, um, and when I went to Bolt Action, I and don't get me wrong, Warlords newest plastics are fantastic, but I learned to hate plastic with a vengeance. Um, I I I love metal models because they are so easy to put together. Now, recently, I put together the new Necromunda models and the new Shade Spire models, and they look. I mean, they were much easier than some of the early Warlord stuff. And so I didn't mind them as much, but man, putting together some of those Malifaux models in particular, I hate my life. Like how, <laughs> yeah, no. t- talk to me about uh, that.
2: I, I feel that completely. And, and coming from sort of 1.5 Malifaux, where stuff started out as metal, you get more stuff that's single pose yeah. or, you know, <laughs> single piece models. So you don't have to put them together. Now that's, that's my dream of easy assembly. Yeah. Um, and they kind of went through a phase where they worked out that if they went to plastic and they 3D sculpt and everything, you can do amazing things with models. And they look great, but yes. it's an aneurysm to put them together.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but the the flip side is uh, just gluing metal to metal, metal to plastic, metal to resin. Um, and the fact I have to use super glue and there's no wiggle room because once you stick those things on, they're not moving. That's true. Um just that, yeah, as much as the generally the models are more complex to put together, I find just having that little bit of forgiveness when you, you're using plastic glue and you join and then you've got a couple of minutes to make sure it's joined in the actual right spot. And if it's not, you can just melt the hell out of it with some more glue and smoosh it till it works. Yeah, that's um, true.
0: Yeah, I guess I just don't have, I'm I'm time poor, well, I have been time poor because I've been doing my master's, and so I got into some, you know, with artisan designs and with warlord's medals for World War II stuff, because I've been doing tons of, you know, um, bolt action and Conflict 47 over the last (laughs) couple years, I got into that, I really don't have time to assemble this army, let alone paint it, but wait, it comes in one piece, it's high quality, I have to clear off a little tiny bit of flash and then glue it to a base? Done. All right, move on. Um, That said, I think now that my master's is done, I'm going to be messing around with it more. Um, Pete, what are are your thoughts on the plastic versus metal? Because I know you mess around with a bit of both.
1: Yeah, look, I'm really in the same boat as you, Brad. I generally prefer metals. And I think when you're playing with something like bolt action or even a samurai game like Test of Honor, there's just so many options that you don't really need to mess around with plastics in terms of, you know, um, doing modifying things or because whatever you can think of, there's probably a metal version out there somewhere. So mm-hmm. I would prefer just to save that sort of time that comes with the assembly and of plastics, particularly the gluing together of my fingers and just <laughs> skip straight to the painting bit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. No, I definitely I I know the joy of converting. And I know that after many years of messing around with bolt action, um, being able to then go to like a a game like Malifaux or the new Necromunda Plastics and actually, oh, wait, I can convert this Um, now. I mean, head swaps and weapon swaps and a few bits and pieces with some um, green stuff aside um, I definitely did not get into converting much in bolt action outside of tanks and vehicles. Um, the infantry just doesn't lend itself to it that often, and I'm just not that skilled with green stuff to, you know, add a, a turban here or, you know, an arm sling there. But, man, it is nice. It's, oh, there is definitely an argument for both, I suppose. Um, but, again, I think it depends on the game you're playing well. Uh Mouse you have uh you've been looking at quite a few games. I know you've been talking about that on your podcast. Um, Malifo aside, um, how are you kind of feeling about the gaming industry right now? Um, anything in particular on the on the horizon that's grabbing you or things that have come out that looks interesting?
2: Look, there's, there's too much, and that's the problem at the moment. It's, yes. um, you know, there's just so many options for games. There's so many options for also smaller-scale games, which make it a lot more accessible, um, you know, where mm-hmm. I don't have to have, you know, 300 models in an army. This is, this is glorious. Um, but, you know, stuff that's like looking at Necromunda, um, that coming out is mm-hmm. all kinds of shiny because it's just, it's just bringing back those memories of, uh, you know, 16-year-old me in the shed, you know, hacking off the the gun of my my leader to put on something bigger and meaner, um, and destroying models in the process. So it's it's really tickling that that vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, weird, bringing out uh, the other side alongside Malifaux mm-hmm. as a, a slightly larger scale um, game, but with a very similar mechanic, is getting me all kinds of excited. Um, Batman miniatures game, second edition. Yes. I'm looking looking at those and really, I'm not going to be able to resist. Who are we kidding ourselves? Yeah. But um, it looks like they've done a really good job just sort of cleaning up that rule set, making it a little bit easier, a little bit more accessible.
0: Especially if you're English speaking, yes. Yeah.
2: And, you know, putting together a rule book where you can actually find rules because you're not hunting through pages of comic. Yes. Um, which was, it was so pretty, but so impractical. It was. Um and then uh, you know, a few other the little G dub specialists like uh, Shadespire Shade yes. from G-Dub, um Blood Bowl I can never get enough of. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, if uh, Saga actually do a, a decent job of uh, their their fantasy element, I'll be all over that too. So Yeah,
0: man. Too many good things out there. Um I actually this sat is the problem. yeah it is. I sat down with uh old friend uh, Marky Mark, uh, Mark Unsworth the other day and we played Shadespire. And we only had literally a couple of hours um, before um, between my taking um, Jim, our little dog slash co-host of this podcast, um, the silent member of this podcast um, to the vet and then um, going to meet my family for dinner. And so I sat down with Mark and he pulled out Shadespire and taught me to play. And we ended up playing three full games. We played a best of three in two hours. Now, that includes learning the game and then playing two full games on top of that. Um, and now, I'm going to do a whole episode on Spire* later, but that's astonishing, especially for a company like Games Workshop. Um, it's incredibly tight, incredibly clean, um, very simple to learn, Um, but man, there's a lot of tactical depth there. Like I pulled a few aha moments, um, and Mark pulled a lot more than I did because he knew the game, but it, um, it definitely, it's, it's fun and it's interesting and it's completely different from anything else that I've played that games workshops made. If it didn't say games workshop on the box, if it said FFG, I would have Mm -hmm. not been surprised. Um, I mean, you could literally have taken almost any fantasy setting and put, you know, it didn't have to be Games Workshop's IP, but man, it worked well. Um, now, it, it's that whole deck building element, um, and one thing I really like about the way they, they get people started is they, so when you buy the game, it's relatively cheap, and there's two decks of cards one for the corn guys, one for the sigmarite guys. And then there's a third deck that says, "Don't open this until you played some games. And so you, you pull out your corn guys, they're push fit, so you just slap them together. You have your sigmarites, you push them together, um, and then you move them around this board. Um, and you already have your decks made and you start playing. and it's a really quick, easy pickup to learn, because you know, so much of the game is deck building, but by giving you those starter decks, Already organized and pre wrapped in the box, I was able to get three games in. And I actually feel like I have a pretty decent understanding of how the basics of the game work. And I played three full games in under two hours. Now, if I'm going to go back and I'm going to start, you know, adding, because I want to play orcs, if you start getting the orc cards in and opening up those extra cards and, you know, picking which cards I want to use, well, that's a much more in depth process that I haven't looked at yet. And I will, of course, have to do before I play again and then start podcasting about it. But, man, just as a quick pickup, I really liked that game. Um, I don't know if it's going to be my, you know, it's not going to be my forever love as a game, I don't think. Um, But, man, it's a great, especially on those weeknights where, you know, you have a mate down the street and you want to play a game. But you don't have time to set up the four by six and throw down all the terrain and then build an army and put it all out. The models don't change. You were talking earlier about, you know, things being shiny because they only had three or four models um, or, you know, ten models. This is a game, you know, Malfoy, you joke, oh, I only need a master's box, and then I don't need to buy anymore. I can just play, ha, 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 S- you know, 6,000 models later. Um, this is a game where you literally have between three and seven models, and th- they don't change. Your skeletons are always the same seven skeletons. You can't change the models unless, you know, you want a modeling convert them but you actually can't upgrade your list it's not a list building exercise which is completely unlike anything else games workshops done it's completely your models are always the same they always have the same stats but the cards that you use to make them interact and play the game are completely different and that's where the the building comes in it's really strange but it's it's clean it's nice i like it um but again not sure um have you had a chance to look at that, Pete? I know we talked about it a little bit before.
1: Uh, not so much Shades, but I've actually been looking at the uh, competing privateer press one, Company of Iron, just for reasons of aesthetics. I tend to lean towards the war machine models, just mm. never um, felt uh, I wanted to play the larger game. So mm-hmm. I've been looking at that one recently, and we'll probably pick it up at CanCon and give that a go. Mm. But as you were saying, I think it's just pressures of life at the moment i am looking at these smaller games like test of honor um exactly and dead man's hand um mm-hmm. games where you're playing with about um you know five to maximum 10 models is really um great at the moment because you can get a game in in a couple of hours of, of an evening when you've got off work and get home still in time not to be in too much trouble
0: yeah totally mouse what do you, have you messed around with the idea of shade spire at all or do you know anything about that yeah, and no, I
2: had a, a couple of games, similar situation. Basically, Pip grabbed the box and uh, I was over there and he goes, oh, we've got an hour or so, let's just bust out a couple of games of this. And, you know, within 10 minutes, I understood how the game worked. Um, and within an hour, we'd bust out at a couple of games. Um, and it was that real, it was a real change from g sort of regular approach where it was kind of, they said, no, this is a balanced game. It will be, you know, organized play events and tournaments and that kind of stuff. So off the bat, they're supporting that kind of approach yeah um and i suppose it's easy when you have got fixed you know models um i haven't come from a deck building background at all so i haven't played magic or anything like that Mm. but so the concept is pretty new and pretty fresh to me um and the idea that you know you still get that sort of when i'm not playing there's still ways to involve myself in the hobby i can go through and and look at the deck and and look Mm -hmm. at what i want to do and how i want to build it while i'm at work Uh, you know, getting paid for it. Totally. That's infinitely better.
0: Yeah, exactly. God, I wish I had a job where I could do that. Too many kids in my, uh, my classroom to do that little trick. But yeah, you, you think, you go, when I'm walking to work and walking, you know, walking back, you got, gotta have something to have the old gray, uh, gray cells working on. And, um, yeah, yeah, you need something to focus on. And I think they've done a good job of having enough cards. And then by slowly rolling out the, um, the different war bands that add cards, but it's not the random cards. If you, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit like the FFG model for X-Wing where you want this particular card, you need to buy that ship. Um, but it's all low price point And I mean, it's relatively easy to pick up all the cards. Um, I guess it doesn't have X-Wing's problem of having all of those. Um, I mean, X-Wing's got what, five, six years of, model bloat and card bloat at this point where there's just thousands of cards um, whereas this is sort of going to be all contained i think within 400 cards and then they might move on to the next warhammer underworld's game um, i just think it's a really awesome business model and game model for games workshop to be exploring one of the other things i really like about for organized play you're mentioning that not only are, do they actually, is Games Workshop going to be doing an organized play pack, which is something that you know we haven't seen necessarily for a lot of Games Workshop games for a really long time, um, is they they recommend for Shadespire you play two at oh sorry best of three, um, so you play three games with your opponent so you can get your head kicked in in the first game, um, figure out what your opponent's you know deck slash tactics are all about and then you can compensate for it by the way you play in game two or game three so it's it you don't just get a hard tabled and then that's it does that make sense am i yeah which no, i, I mean, yeah mouse go ahead
2: no it makes sense uh, like you, you if i've got two hours for a game and let's say you know let's talk back in the day someone to bring over their you know their warhammer or their 40k army mm-hmm. or something and we'd bust out a game In it's it, you could lose within, you know, the first hour of that, but it's, you can't rack it up again. You haven't got time to play a second game necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it's, I get my head stomped in. I've just carted all my models halfway across town for, you know, an hour worth of taking them off the table again. Whereas this keeps both players engaged and involved over that same time frame. So I think just for those of us that are a little bit time for, or just those of us that are really bad at games, <laughs> um, you still get, right you on. still get, um, some involvement and some engagement throughout it. So I think that's a really cool aspect to it.
0: It is. And even though it's short, I, I do like it. It has the aspect of as you play through, you build up your, I, I forget the name of the tokens, glory. I think that's, so you're trying, the person with the most glory wins. Um, isn't that a, the case in life? But um, the way it works is like Malifaux, as you ab- achieve certain objectives, you know, your score goes up and the person with the highest score wins. Well, you can actually lose all your models in Shadespire and still win, um, depending on, you know, what you were playing and how you played it. I like that about Malify. I love that about the game. And the fact that it has, I mean, that Shadespire has that to a degree um, is, I you know, is just something that really appeals to me. So you can get tabled, um, you know, the old, take it off Warhammer Fantasy, um, uh, take off your opponent's models, haha, you win. Well, you can still take off all your opponent's models and lose. Um, I like that a lot. Um, it just means that you have to play tactically, you have to play to the mission, or, you know, depending on what your objectives are. Um, which, you know, in Malifaux is, I think, a much more rich um, experience. But Malifaux, you're also, it's a much longer game with a lot more depth. Um, now, MalFO is a great game, and I love playing it, but, man, it's hard to pick up for me to get all... Be, the basic rules aren't hard, but the fact that almost every model breaks those rules in some way and you need to know your models and some of your opponent's models makes it kind of hard to pick up sometimes. Um, as a faux... I don't want to say expert, but I don't know. Maybe you are Um person who's played a ton. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, do you...
2: No, it's definitely one of the things that the Malifaux. You know, it's both the best thing and the hardest thing about the game is that the the core mechanics are really simple. The, The whole idea that you're playing for. Um, you know, schemes and strategies and those objective-based things rather than just killing stuff Mm -hmm. um, is one of the things that really, really appeals. But the fact that it's all about how each individual model, and in most cases they are individuals, uh, are interacting with each other with the rules, what rules they're breaking, what rules Mm -hmm. they're changing, what rules they're adding. Um, The more models that they introduce, the more complex the game gets and the harder it is to keep up. So it works really, really well if you're going to either go all in and, and, you know, live and breathe it. It works really, really well if you're playing in a group that are all casually playing because you're all at about the same level. Right. But it's one of those ones that is really easy to have big swings when you've got someone who is um, really into the game and they're understanding all the the synergies and stuff and someone Mm -hmm. who's just picking up and playing every once in a while. That Suddenly that is a, a massive shift in... Um, you know, probably how well you're going to do at the game in most instances. Whereas, you look at Shadespire, and you've got that still, the the, the sort of objective-based things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, I don't need to know that many different rules and and things. And, you know, it probably doesn't matter if I don't know what your objectives are, because I can just play to mine.
0: hmm Exactly. Uh-huh. And I like how in Shadespire, every every time, every... So, the Shadespire, you are broken into three turns, and each turn... Um, or as the turns progress, you achieve, you achieve your secret objectives because you have cards that your opponent doesn't see. Um, and then you pull new ones into your hand. So your objectives over the course of the game, even though it's short, change. Um, so as you achieve things, um, or if you you find that you can't achieve any of them, you can dump them and then get new ones. Um, so the what you're trying to achieve the whole time changes, um, but it's a secret from your opponent. So Though it's not as deep as the Malifaux way of doing things, where the schemes and strats are very, you know, schemes and strategies are very, um, are very rich in how you go about playing them, um, you have to commit a certain way. Um, Shadespire is a much shorter, sharper, um, much less deep experience. Um, but I think that lends itself to the way the game is set up. And I think both works within the context of each other's games. I'm not to say that one's better than the other one. I think they're both having the secret objectives within both games is great. And I think it just, it's just another aspect of the game that I really enjoy. Um, Pete, what do you think about any of that? Does that jump out at you? Uh,
1: Look, my question would be whether Shadesby goes a bit too far. I mean, you minimise the painting element, you sort of remove the terrain element, you've got armies that are the same in terms of look. So I guess I kind of wonder, have they gone too far? Will this actually be a game that gets serious traction or will this just be a bit of a filler game that Mm. people occasionally play? Um, And sort of leading into our bigger discussion, what's it going to look like as a tournament scene? Will it get get off the ground as a tournament game? Um, Just, I mean... To my sense, it seems going, leaning almost too far towards the card-type gaming element than mm. the miniature warfare gaming element. And so I'll be interested to see as to whether what sort of tournament play it attracts and how, how big that is.
0: I think it's GW's way of trying to get into the magic market. Um, there's a couple of shops in the Melbourne CBD that are heavily magic-centric. Go figure. I mean, it's a money-making money printing endeavor um some joke um by uh whiz kids but um sorry wizards of the coast is it Whiz kids wizards of coast whatever um watsi and they i i think this is one of those things where you can just buy a box open it up push the models together and if you're into deck building it's very much a gateway drug into tabletop war gaming um but yeah i think you're entirely right i think Um, Some of these nuances are lost to us tabletoppers, but I think, are we the audience? Now, that's the interesting question. I don't know. Could be. Um, I can also see kids picking up this game. So, I think it's a very clever little maneuver by GW. I I hope it pays off, um, because I like to see them get out, branch out, and do more interesting things. Yeah. because, yeah, Games Workshop in the last, what, eight, 12, 18 months has sort of come back from the dead and is doing so in a really interesting way um, of throwing out things that I'm actually, as a veteran gamer, um, are interested in. And I know people who have children who are hitting sort of pre-teen um, stage in their life, and all of a sudden, everything the Games Workshop's doing is looking interesting to those kids. And in order to hit me as a veteran gamer and them as you know, possible new gamers, I think they're doing something right um, in a way that, you know, they're not necessarily alienating the old folk and, while they're simultaneously attracting the new ones, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Mouse, what do you think?
2: Yeah, no, I think there's there's probably both parts of that uh, I agree with in that, you know, it is one of those, it's a, a deck game with models. It's not necessarily a model game with cards. Right. Um,
0: but that's Malifaux. The flip side yeah.
2: is, yeah. But the flip side is, is GW doing a really, really good way at, at making gateway drugs. Um, you know, this to get sort of your, your magic, your, your Pokemon, your Yu-Gi-Oh type players into playing with models, into the hobby, into painting. From there, it's only a really short, um, trip into something like Age of Sigma Skirmish, which scales up to the bigger game pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the mechanics now between that and 40K are pretty similar, so that's an easy jump if you decide you like Space Marines. Um, so all of a sudden you can go through the entire GW catalog coming in at Shadespire and pick up anything else a lot easier and just as you scale stuff you can throw it on the table and play other games. Um, as yeah. far as an actual standalone tournament game, we'll see. I, I think a few people have got excited the fact that you know GW have said that they're going to run it as an organized play event. Um the depth in it, it'll it'll see it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, they need to start releasing more cards and more stuff and, and different ways you can build decks. And as I yeah. said, not coming from a, a sort of card game background, I don't know I, I won't understand the complexity straight off. Um and I don't know whether they're gonna need to start introducing, you know, different themes and, and this kind of thing. So you can run a, a really denial themed deck versus a really aggressive one and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um You know, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes to. But, yeah, straight up as a gateway drug, they're doing the right things.
0: Yeah, totes. Well, before we bring this to a close, Pete, did you want to add anything to uh, what we're saying?
2: No, no, I
1: think it's all been said.
0: All right, cool. Well, I think uh, we're about a half an hour in. We should probably get to the main topic. Um, So, (laughs) not to bury the lead completely, but um, in introducing both of these fine gentlemen... Um, you would have probably picked up that I talked about. Both of them are TOs, or tournament organizers. Now, I know that um, for some bolt-action players and some metas, um, the word tournament is a dirty word. Um, so for the context of this conversation, let's not get into that debate necessarily, and let's talk about planning events. Um, events, be them competitive play, be them friendly events where people get together to play, um, Tournaments, I guess I'm just going to use that word interchangeably with events throughout this conversation. But I don't want people to listen and get the heebie-jeebies about, oh, tournaments, win at all costs, you know, smash your face in type events. No, I'm talking about people getting together together. Um, in organized play events, where they are guaranteed to get, if it's a one-day event, you know maybe three or four games in a day. If it's over the course of a weekend, it's it's getting a chance to get out and play with friends or play with people who play a similar game to you. It may be making new friends or seeing friends you haven't seen in a while, um, and playing in a in a manner to you know for whatever purpose. Now, organizing events like that is kind of the is kind of where I would like to sit this conversation today. But we're also going to talk about you know, what it's like to play in one of those events. So if you're listening and going, Ugh, I don't ever want to run an event, it's just not for me. Um, I hope that if you listen to this, you'll get maybe some ideas about what events play is like. Um, also, you might get to peek behind the curtain a little bit and understand why certain things happen. I know the first time I played in a proper big tournament, um, it was the very first Baltimore Grand Tournament that they ever ran. I believe it was 1993 or 2. Um, and I flew up from New Orleans, and I was very excited. I was playing with my half-painted Chaos Space Marines, and it was it was a really crappy list, and I didn't know what I was doing. And I was just really excited to play. And I played, and I learned a ton. But at the end of the weekend... Um, They gave us our scores and we walked off. And I had no idea why I ended up where I did. Um, And it wasn't until years later where I actually had a beer with the tournament organizers that I understood um, how the whole, I mean, the system kind of worked. And it changed the way that I played, um, not to like stomp someone's face in, but to understand almost the game within the game or understand what tournament organizers are looking for um so i'm not showing up with you know a a list that will make someone else have a negative game experience or the feel badsies um or that i do have a fully painted army that you know might give me you know one or two points um benefit you know just to understand the process now of course that was a million years ago and i was very very young but listening to this conversation i hope you get something out of it now um as i said mouse has run Uh, Many successful Malifaux events at this point, both large and small, and Pete likewise has run many bolt action events, large and small, and Conflict 47 events. Um, I personally have run um, Warhammer 40,000, big Warhammer 40,000 events, um, a couple large Warhammer fantasy events. Um, and several other game systems, uh, tons of bolt-action events over the years. So I feel like between the three of us, there's a lot of gaming tournament knowledge. Now, Mouse, I'm pretty sure you've also run a lot of fantasy events. I know because I've played in them. Um, And Pete, I'm sure you've run other things as well, given your level of organization. Um, I guess the first thing I wanted to talk about today is when creating these events to have people come and play... What is your primary, and I know this goes back to something you talked about a while ago on your show, Mouse, what do you, what are your, are are you more um, worried about giving your players a fun or a more fair um, event to play in? Do you guys sort of get where I'm going with that? Um, Mouse, do you want to start? Because I know you've tackled this topic before.
2: Yeah, and it's one of those things, and I think it really depends on the community. Um, and you know, we're relatively lucky where we're, we are, sort of in in Melbourne and, and surrounds, in that the community has come together and they've got a pretty similar mindset of what they want from an event, which makes it easy to make that call. Right. Um, it's whether you do something, uh, an event to make it as balanced and basically take everything away from the game so theoretically it's only the player's ability that you know it's the best player that wins or the best player on the weekend that wins or whether you start wrapping other things around it to say well you know, list building is one aspect of the game, but these lists are inherently stronger than others. So do we start handicapping them, again, to take that out of the game so it's the person who plays better? Whether you start wrapping in um, hobby scores, so the person who, you know, paints the best army or um, is potentially the best sports or other things as well. And it's it's trying to juggle that balance so you're attracting as many of the people you want to attract as possible. You know, I want people who want to go in and just play games and, and go hard. But I also want the guy who's just painted his his first army, he's super excited to show that off and, you know, may not be as great as the game. And I think if you skew the pack one way or the other, you inherently – attract certain people and maybe deter others. Yeah. Um, and it's making that call early about what kind of event you want to run and just going with that, you know, whether you want to run a, a, a hardcore gaming event where the hardcore gamers will show up and they'll they'll play hard or whether you want to try to make it as accessible to as many people or whether you want to go something like a more like a hobby-style event where, you know, potentially, and I know, um, what was it? Oh, Geelong Heresy did that, where basically your painting scores and your hobby scores with the same weighting as any of the game scores. So you could lose every game and still come you know, top of the field mm-hmm. because your hobby scores you'd maxed out on. And it's just making that call early.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, now, you talked about how the Melbourne community from uh, Malifo is very similar in um, what it kind of is looking for. Um, I know the sort of the, the East Coast slash national um, identity of Bolt Action is um, not as, uh, how do I say um uh, agreed in agreement um with what its expectations are which makes i think the bolt planning for a, a big event um where people come from around the at least the east coast of australia um to cancon to play in your event peter um how do you balance that because that's that's tough man
1: yeah i mean as you say i think the community the bolt action community expectations around event have grown more diverse over the last couple of years as the bolt action community has grown. I mean, three or four years ago, it was a a smaller community and I guess more like-minded, but it's become more diverse. So community expectations are one thing I try and weigh up. Um, The other things I look at are look my own expectations. Um, What do I feel comfortable running? Um, Do I feel comfortable running a sort of hard event or do I want a more inclusive event? And generally I lean towards the sort of more inclusive side of things. And, you know, what am I trying to achieve? Am I trying to grow the community or am I trying to, um, you know, push this this one event? And I also think there's expectations around the event itself in terms of something like CanCon. It's, the CanCon Convention is probably Australia's largest, I'd venture to guess, and it's sort of seen as the nationals for most types of events or, or games. And so... You've got to take that into account as well. As you say, there are some people travelling quite long distances to come to play at something like CanCon, and um, they're really expecting a, a chance to test themselves against other players from across Australia. So you've got to take that factor into account as well. Whereas something like WinterCon's a bit more relaxed. Um, you can try different things, and I often do. But CanCon, you've got more expectations around that. So. Trying to balance all those things um, means that you, you generally land somewhere in the middle. That you can't, it, it can't be a sort of event where you're focused on the hobby side of things because some people have strong ex- expectations about um, a tournament style. But at any event personally that I run where I'm putting the blood, sweat, and tears, I also want it to be the type of event where someone who has only played the game once or twice before can still rock up and have a fun experience.
0: Exactly. I know both of you have said that. I know Massa said it on his cast, and I think mentioned it a second ago. Um, And I know you just mentioned it. And when I've run events in the past, I mean, it really is. um, Events not only give us the opportunity to get together, but it isn't an opportunity to grow that community. And you want to make sure that people have positive play experiences when they're coming in. Um, I know that some people who listen to this show... Um, having spoken to them uh, online, haven't played in events and say, oh, I'm not a tournament player. I'm not an event player. I I don't enjoy that sort of thing, Um, some of whom have literally never done it. Um, I went to... I've been to many tournaments and many game systems the first time out, and I can't think of a game system where the first time I went into a game, uh, an event... And I had a miserable time because it was win at all costs. And I have played in some pretty rough events um, over the years. And thankfully, most of those are long gone. Um, but you just go into an event and it's an opportunity to, to to see people and to play the game that you love. And everyone who's there is doing the same thing. Um so, I mean as a TO when I'm running events, I'm con- I'm cognizant and I'm constantly thinking of, well, how can I make sure that these people are having a good time so they'll come back and do it again. Um, because that's how you build a community and that's how I mean some of the best um hobbyists that we've seen over the years came in, I mean I God I, I know we've all been playing um for so long that we've seen people come in from nowhere and become, you know, hobby Uh, or become, you know, event mainstays um, slash community, you know, personalities who, you know, we all started somewhere. Um, And if those people had had negative play experiences, we wouldn't have our patches. Um, We wouldn't have our Brian Cooks. We wouldn't have, um, you know, any of these people who we see online all the time and go, wow, like, oh, that person, well, I still remember Brian Cook coming to Moab and looking at the models going, well, oh, I'm not sure about this. Um, and he hadn't played. He just wanted to see what Bolt Action was all about. Um, and I'd known him from 40K, so, you know, we had a quick chat about it. But, yeah, he started somewhere. And had that been that awful experience and, you know, people were playing and, you know, and weren't having fun, he probably wouldn't have come over to Bolt Action from Flames of War back then. So... I don't know. Um, yeah, Mouse, um, that is something that you've talked about before. I'm not just making that up, right? No,
2: completely. And, I mean, even going back to personal experience, I think my first tournament was uh, Warhammer Fantasy Tournament called convict back in uh, probably 2009-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and up until then, I was very much. Oh, I'm not a tournament player. I don't, you know, I don't care enough about the game. I don't want to deal with, um, you know, people being rules lawyers, and I don't want it to be win at all costs. And I'd, I'd avoided tournaments up until that point, point. and I had a couple of mates convince me that no, we we're going to go away for the weekend and, and play Warhammer at Convic. Um and I for the first two Warhammer tournaments I ever attended, I didn't win a game. Um, I was really bad <laughs> at Warhammer, and um but it was one because of those that, that was
0: me too <laughs> yeah
2: go ahead yeah but i mean it was literally a case of i just painted up a brand new army i had no idea what they did i showed up i got my head stomped in but like the it was a saturday night of, of convict and i'd met a couple of people that i would played and, and whatnot over the course of the weekend we'd had a couple of beers we ended up back in one of the hotel rooms one of the guys had bought um is uh Nintendo along, and we ended up playing Super Smash Brothers till like two in the morning, drunk as go. skunks. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are still the guys that I get together with now when life permits. And, you know, we catch up at tournaments and stuff like that. And it was realizing that, all right, it, it didn't really matter if I won or lost. I was having fun games against new people. I was seeing a whole bunch of different armies that I'd never seen before. Um, I'd seen a whole bunch of different painting and conversion options and, you know, all this effort that people had put into, and there were people that were infinitely better at the game than I was. And that was probably always going to be the case. Um, but it was just, it was actually that social aspect of the game that hooked me in. And I ended up being, you know, that became tournaments within my jam that you would just go to meet people and to catch up with people that you hadn't seen. Cause they're from the other side of the, the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of more what it's about. I find that events I'm running are a little bit probably skewed that way because they're the events that I would like to play in. Totally. Um, but, yeah, it, it's that exact thing where the the initial kind of, oh, I don't know, I'm not an event player, I don't play tournaments, I think it, there is a stigma attached with it. Okay. Um. And I think you know the other thing is is having the internet is both a, a wonderful and, and a scary thing in that because you hear the vocal minorities having that one bad experience across the other side of the world, and you think that's what everything is. Um, whereas now it gives you the opportunity to you know promote events and get people involved and all that kind of stuff. But you've got those little pockets of I had a bad experience and tournaments are bad, and that can proliferate really quickly Mm -hmm. um, and turn people off as well. So I think it it is literally about um, getting people involved and local people and, you know, having stores available where you can go in and just play games and Mm -hmm. stuff and then meet people. And then, you know, it it is more that word of mouth thing that people realize that all their mates are going to this event might as well.
0: Yeah, agreed. If if I can jump on there, Pete, did you want to say something to there? Can I jump in?
1: No, jump away, Brad. Okay.
0: Um, I think just to go back to what we're talking about more largely, I think a large part of what helps create that environment is the person organizing the event. Um, And I think that how people set up their player pack, uh, with their expectations of, you know, how you weight um, the... Um, the gameplay versus, as, as we sometimes call the soft scores of maybe having a composition or having a sportsmanship or having painting scores, um, you know, ha- factoring those in, um, how much you weight, gameplay, um, and even the missions that you play. Um, the missions make a profound difference. Um, and I think when you are making an event, you need to spend a lot of time thinking about what is it you want your players to be doing in that event. Um I like to, for example, with bolt action events, um, bolt action as a game, um, the way that they often balance out some of the lists is by saying some of the missions, um, and I never remember the right word, term for bolt action, so I always use the old 40K term of kill points, but for every time you kill an opponent's a unit, you know, that counts as a point. Um, and those kind, so I like to have one of those missions in there to sort of, to to for every three games, to, you know, to encourage people not just to take huge um, dice, you know, where you're filling the order bag filled with dice, um, or the, the dice bag filled of order dice, um, but you have two objective-based missions as well, so it's not just killing your opponents. You, there's a mix in there, and that helps, um, you know, if, if players are paying attention... Um, especially at the uh, quote-unquote competitive edge, it means that they are tempering their lists and they're not smashing things out one direction or another. Um, And I think that the way that you organize your event really does help create that. And you need to be cognizant of that when you're planning these things. It's all well and good to get people together to play on a given day, um, but especially if you don't know all the people that are coming – that really i, I had an or organized a game day uh a, you know a couple months back and had some people come over and play some games i didn't put a ton of thought into it because i didn't have to i knew everyone that was coming and i knew people were going to be bringing balanced lists they weren't gonna you know try and smash people out rock paper scissors wise one way or another and so it made for a really easy experience but if you are running a 60 80 100 person event you absolutely need to make things as broad as possible. And in, I often try and go as fair as possible, too. Um, so I, I, sometimes at the expense of fun, I will go fair. So uh, I don't know. I think I've I've said a lot there. Um, Pete, do you want to add to anything I just said?
1: Uh, I think that uh, um, the important thing about any tournament is the success or failure of a tournament um, depends on the work you do before the games start it's not what too happens too. on the day really it's it's all the work you have to put in beforehand and as you say I think that starts with the players pack where you think about well what sort of tournament am I trying to run and um, how am I gonna you know set expectations with the people who read the players pack and so You know, I put a lot of thought into how I will word the players' pack to try and get across not only what the rules are, but what the intent of the day will be so that people know what they're getting themselves into. Um, I generally agree that fair is very important. So I almost always have some sort of, you know, um, uh, special rules or, um, you know, knock out some units or nerf some units just because I think that, you know, fairness will work out better that way um you know i try and balance it between those things which are generally agreed to be op and so no one really is too concerned if you nerf them and then there are some things that just as the to i i personally feel need to be modified so for example the latest bolt action event i um nerfed tiger fear on the panzer four so it only apl- so it only applied to veterans now. I don't think everyone's agreed on that, but, heck, that's the type of event I want to run. But then, you know, once you set those expectations, there's all the the work of pulling together everything you're going to need on the day, all the terrain, making sure people get all their lists in and get it checked. So I think what most people probably don't realise about, you know, setting up a tournament is that it's not really what happens on the day. It's actually everything that you do beforehand that's going to determine the success or failure of an event, particularly... Um, when you've got a big event of anything more than probably about 20 people, you really, it's the it's the pre-event work that's going to be critical.
2: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really fair point. The actual running of a tournament on the day is kind of the easy bit. Um, and it's it's all the work that you do before then. And I think the point you're know, you making about, you know, striking a balance between fair and fun they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. They're, they're not right. polar opposites. In a lot of instances, a fair game is a fun game because both players feel like that they have equal chance. Um, well so done. I think in a lot of instances, what we're doing... By trying to, you know, maybe nerf some, you know, overpowered things or boost some under, you know, um, underrated things, mm-hmm. is actually to create a fairer game, which inherently make, you know, you see a bigger diversity of uh, units. It's not everyone taking the same thing because, you know, it's the good thing, um, you know, and having that balance in um, objectives. And in most instances, you know, it's going to be either. Um, you know go capture objective type situations or kill stuff having a mix of those means that people are bringing armies that need to be able to do both of those things um you know you can't just it's no fun just having someone roll dice and you take your models off the table so if that's all someone's army does it kind of makes a negative experience by default and that's not the problem you know that's not the fault of the player that's the fault of the person who put that game together Um, So there is a level of responsibility there um, when you're creating a player's pack that, you know, you are creating games that will be, you know, uh, achievable by both players, depending on what, you know, factions or armies or races they're taking, um, what kind of lists they want to take, you know, and aren't going to be skewed heavily one way or the other. So I think that's the, the, the thing is we're trying to make fun games by making the game fairer.
0: Agreed. Completely agreed. So just to continue what you guys are saying about being organized in advance, um, I think a really big part of organizing an event, um, especially if it's a larger event, is how you're going to keep track of people's scores throughout. Um, Because, I mean, even people who aren't you know, win at all costs and who just like to go and have fun with their friends. I mean, people still are playing a game and winning and losing is still part of that game. And people generally like, you know, if you take that into account, if they're winning and losing in an event, Um, if you've won all of your games um, and things are going really well, you know, that should be reflected perhaps on the podium, depending on the scoring of the event. Um, And I know that having played in more events than I can count, um, I definitely still remember those events where the scoring wasn't um, recorded neatly or handled properly and where, um, you know, maybe the wrong people win. Um, and you go back later and you say, oh, actually, you know, the the scoring, the, you know, when they are keeping track of the scoring, the tournament organizer switched a couple of people's scores. Um, and so you actually have to you know, send a trophy to someone else, especially when it's interstate and, you know, you have someone who's, you know, flown back to New Zealand and you have to now send them the trophy because the person was in the wrong place um, on, the, on the standings. Um, so using software to track that is just the modern way of doing it. Um, I typically use a modified Excel um, scoring sheet. Um, how do you guys keep track of just the vast amounts of data that you need to on the day to run a proper event. Um, I've used a a ton of different Excel sheets over the years. Um, Usually I have someone help me do it because I'm just not that organized um, with a computer. Um, Mouse, how do you do it?
2: Um, My software of choice is uh, called Warscore, which is a free-to-download type situation. the reason I like that over a lot of the other ones is it's it's game agnostic, so it, it doesn't matter what game, and you basically set it up to score however you want. So you can say, I want um, you know, the overall winner to be a mix of these different scores. Um, you can add in painting scores. You can add in completely separate, like I've done, um, you know, player voted best painted, for example, you keep track of it mm-hmm. in the same place. Um, you enter all your scores in the same spot. It doesn't add, you know, I've set it up so it doesn't uh, contribute to the final score, but I get a, a ranking for that at the end of it. I can spit all that data out into Excel if I want to spin it you now and, and show mm-hmm. players or, you know, that kind of thing afterwards. Um, and it's one of those that, look, there was a little bit of a learning curve to get it up and running. Um, and because it is so flexible, it is a little bit more complicated. Um, but, uh, you know, that's been my go-to for the last however long I've been running events. I sort of discovered that and and haven't looked back. Um you know, I've, I've tried a few different, tried Excel's and mm-hmm. and a few things like that, and I just find if something goes wrong in Excel and I can't find which formula needs fixing, you know, when you've got that pressure on you, I don't want to have to deal with that. Which is why I've I've sort of outsourced that to a a dedicated scoring program.
0: Totally, yeah. I usually have friends handy who can help me out if I get stuck. But oh god, when Excel goes wrong, it's all bad. Uh, Pete, how do you yeah. uh, keep track of things?
1: Well, coincidentally, I use War Score as well. Hey! Uh, two votes. Um, no, it's a great program. As uh, Mao says, there's a pretty steep learning curve. It's not very intuitive, but once you've got to figure it figured out, it works reasonably well. And I know I probably shouldn't complain about free software, but there's just one feature that bugs me, and that is that the table um, oh. assignments. Which is supposed to be random seems very unrandom when I use it. Like getting players assigned to the same table over and over again. So, but otherwise, yeah, you got to love War Score. I think it, it does a great job, particularly since it's free.
2: Yeah, I, I've actually stopped using the table random. Like I, I let it do that, and then I just sort the draw by a random arbitrary score. Um, you know, it could have been last game's results. It could be you know up to now, and then just call out tables based on that. I've stopped using its table sorting at
0: all. Yeah, it's good to know. Cause you do want your players to have new experiences, to play new people and, you know, play on new tables. Um, now, I guess that brings me to my next question. Um, I guess it's not really a question, but I think it's something that bears conversation. If you were a tournament organizer and one of the big things about war gaming is putting miniatures down on a tabletop and pushing them around and playing missions. Well, if you're going to put things down on a tabletop, um, some of my most, my least favorite events that I've ever played in were actually run fairly well, um, but you show up and you're pushing models around on an empty tabletop. I really feel that, I mean, terrain makes a huge difference um, when you are playing in events, um, you know. Though, I've, like I've said in the past, when I play a lot of war games, um, I like to have nicely painted models. And I love it when my opponent has painted models so you can sort of immerse yourself in the game. And when you're playing that on nice terrain, um, it just makes everything pop. That said, once things start moving, um, my brain sort of stops seeing the tabletop. And like, I guess I see like the matrix. I just see the lines of data as my brain sort of sees the game as I'm playing. But that said, if I didn't have that there, my, I have a hard time then getting to that place. Am I, am I making sense? So for for someone who organizes events, um, in my closet, I have five tables worth of full terrain ready to go right now. And I like to mix it up when I play, you know, funds games with my friends. Um, but when I run events, I don't have any problems setting those out. But it took a long time to get all that terrain put together painted um accumulated it all because terrain ain't cheap um now i know that you guys both own a lot of terrain as well and i assume that is also because you run events um pete how many tables do you have because you've got a lot of really impressive terrain
1: uh i can currently throw down 18 tables yeah. of uh decent terrain for well world war Two, essentially
0: and some of that stuff's huge
1: yeah it's um i mean it's one of the curses of being a to i guess you have to at least be able to have a kernel or a you know a good basis for which to set up an event so you need you know you need at least four or five tables if you're starting out a tournament um and over time you know i've just sort of added to it I mean, I think terrain is actually really important. It's both important for the players, to for the enjoyment of an event, but it's also important to bring people into the hobby because as people are walking by, whether the games at a club or an event, it's, you know, the visual spectacle. And if you've, as you're saying, if you're playing on a table with just a bit of green and maybe some cut-out bits of cardboard representing forests, that you know, people don't stop and look and stare and they don't get the full effect. So... The terrain is, I think, a big important of big uh, part of any event, and it's often one of the hardest parts, though, especially when you're talking an event with you know 50 to 100 people. There's just a huge number of um, tables to organise, mm-hmm. um, but also just the physical set up and breakdown of that many tables takes you know a very long time. So uh, that's just another always another thing you have to consider as a TO.
0: Yeah, get there the night before or the day before and set up if you can, especially if it's a large event. Don't expect to do it in the morning. I hate having to set up events the morning of the event, um, even if you can get into the shop early enough to do it, because you will never start on time. It never works properly. Um, And if you do, um, in my case, I often feel like things are rushed and perhaps tabletops have... Um, situations in them that maybe don't work well with the rules where buildings may be too close together or there's a great big open spot in the middle of the table that makes a kill zone, which really makes for, you know, some unfun game experiences. Um, Anyway, Mouse, what do you what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, no, it's all of those things. So it's the immersive experience for players. But as we're talking about table randomization, the reason that that's so important is so players get a different experience each game. Too if true. you're playing on the same table, um, you know, you kind of get the idea of here's a good spot to camp my snipers because it's got a massive vantage point. And you know, making people think on their feet each game is really important. Uh, um, 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 so there's the immersive experience for players, and the actual in-game experience for players, and the reason that that's important. Just drive bys, the fact that it looks better. Um, but it is the challenging part of of probably organizing and mm-hmm. one of the more challenging parts is how do I logistically get maybe you know up to fifty tables of terrain that looks good that I can get you know the night before, ideally, and we've all had that situation where you haven't been able to get in the night before and you're rushing the day before mm-hmm. or the, the morning of an event and it, it does, it feels rushed. I'm a little bit of a control freak and the way that people set up a table is not necessarily the way that I would set up a table. Yep. Um, and then during an event, I'm the one that's going to get called over about a rules query because this person can't see this person because this building is in the way because it's not where I would have put it. So, you know, I kind of have to deal with the fallout, so I like to be in control of where they would, you know, all the terrain sits and how it would look and how it plays with the, the game. Um, we were in a relatively lucky space, firstly, at the moment where um, the venue we run a lot of events has tables and terrain and stuff ready to go. So you have to do a, a lot less. Um, but there's been a lot of gaming clubs over the years that have been really supportive. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I remember when I first started running tournaments, having the guys out at the Hampton Games Club go, look, we've got a tournament full of terrain sitting in the club. Come and pick it up and use it and just drop it back. Um, and that sort of let us early on to start running events, which you know, the community all appreciates. You know, they, they contribute. By bringing some tables, and you might have people saying, oh, I can bring along two or three tables worth of terrain, um, which is really, really handy. Um, and it lets you start running events and build up that sort of base of terrain so you don't need to rely on as many people. Um, so that's always been a really good thing, just being involved in the community and, you know, saying, you know, let's run a, a prize for who brings the best table of terrain. We'll yeah. do that as a thing. And all of a sudden people start painting terrain for your event and building stuff. Um, That's, that's a really cool kind of way to sort of get people excited about it as well.
0: Yeah, totally. Now, Pete, I know you also are pedantic. I mean, I think all three of us are pedantic about where terrain goes on the table. And I know that once people have set up their terrain, I've seen you walk around going, "Eh, I'm not sure about that one. Um, Is that something that an experience you go through regularly at all your events?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as Ma said, it's actually an important part of the gameplay. Um, obviously, some if you set up train a certain way, it may advantage one player or the other quite significantly. So you have to go round and do a check of all the tables, particularly mm. when other people who have generously bought tables set it up, and you go, uh, yeah, that may look good visually, but it you've got all the hard cover in one particular corner. That's going to advantage one player for certain missions. And so you do have to um, think a bit about your terrain and your placement. And just um, that is another part of being the TO and just checking that whole fairness versus fun factor and what not fairness and fun factor, sorry, not versus um, and just making sure that the tables um, uh, are going to make the games fun.
0: Absolutely. Um, now, let's, let's talk about another element of TOing that isn't always necessarily fun. Um, but if you're planning to play in an event, um, a lot of events... Now, Mouse, this may not apply to you maybe at this moment, um, since Malifo doesn't really do fixed lists. Every game you sort of pick models out of a pool. Um, but I know that you know this experience from Warhammer from back in the day. Um, when I run events, um, I often, these days, I don't use a composition score or, um, to tell people whether or not they, you know, to, to really, I don't know, um, benefit people for taking quote unquote softer lists because people, you know, it's kind of out of vogue at the moment. And a lot of people just got sort of tired of, you know, playing to a system, um, that is beyond the game. Um, but, (sighs) What do you do as a TO when you see somebody's list and you just know it's tuned to the moon and it's gonna, it's designed to kick in face? Historical accuracy, game, you know, theme, whatever you want to call it, has been thrown to the wind, and they've just min maxed the best possible stuff to smash face as much as possible. Um, I've always found those conversations. Um, look, I, have I've saved a couple of emails over the years that I send out, um, back to people that just say, look, um, I, am not sure if you are aware, but I kind of feel like this list is maybe a little bit harder than what I expect, um, people might take for this event. Um, would you consider resubmitting this? Um, or I'm sorry, I just can't accept it the way it is because of this. Um, are those experiences that you guys have found And are sometimes that you find difficult or do you I mean, after a certain point, I don't think I mind that conversation anymore, because I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of something that's horrible. And I don't want my players to have that experience. Um, Peter, I know you've had to do this a lot recently because you do WinterCon and CanCon. How do you sort of handle that situation?
1: Well, I mean, the first step is you try and avoid it by setting clear expectations in the pack, both in terms of hard mm-hmm. rules, but also just, as I said earlier, just in terms of expectations so that people hopefully know the attitude to come into the game with. But um, bolt action can be a little bit difficult because there's a couple of ways you can build lists. You can either use the army list or you can use the theatre lists, and the theatre lists can be pretty rubbery. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it, I find it hard because... I never like to presume that someone's built a list because they want to smash face. I mean, right. I remember, I remember in one of my early bolt action events, I thought I'd love to do some um, uh, cavalry, so I did this whole big Mongolian Russian cavalry force, and mm-hmm. the TO essentially came back to me and said, yeah, "No way, you, no way, you're going to be able to run that," and I, I sort of. I felt, I must admit, I felt a little bit ashamed that I'd submitted it. I mean, I'd submitted it because of the theme, but um, when I went back and looked at it, I thought, uh, yeah, you're right, that is a bit of a dirtbag list, Um, particularly all that cavalry for version one bolt action. So I try not to presume that people have done it deliberately and that, you know, think the best of your players at all the times and just you go back to them and say, look, I think this is not going to be a a fun list for you or for people playing you because, and um, can you reconsider and maybe just tweak it a bit here or there to um, uh, make it a bit more reasonable. So I try never to sort of say no, I always try and help them come up with a list that is similarly themed or looks similar, but I oh. guess just is aligned with my expectations for the event.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Um, before I handball it to you, Mouse, uh, I'm going to put a little context on it for you. Um, so you and your buddies used to run, um, before Twatafo, um the Wargaming A-team ran an event in Geelong, and of course, n- from uh, Fantasy Battle, and I can't believe that I'm forgetting this.
2: Rumble in the Bronx. Thank
0: you, Rumble. Oh, God, I was like... Why am I forgetting this? Um, So we played in Rumble and I often played as in the club that you referenced earlier, Hampton. Um, All my buddies who played, played at Hampton. I played at Hampton regularly. Um, I just didn't play that often. But when I did, I played against those guys. And those guys tended to play a, how should I say, very competitive brand of Warhammer fantasy. Um, and so I know that when I often listed, I asked my friends for help because, um, I, I wasn't keeping up on what was quote unquote good. And I just wanted to have, you know, I didn't want to bring a knife to a gunfight. Um, and as a, as a player in a game system who the scene I wasn't necessarily keeping up on, I would ask them, you know, Hey, can you help me do this? And I would make lists and I would turn it in and then I would show up to rumble um, in particular, cause those, it was a great tournament to go down to Geelong for a weekend. And, you know, as you say, drink with your mates and have a great time. Rumble had like the party atmosphere that was fantastic. It was one of my favorite events of the year, every year. Um, but without fail, and I learned it by the last time I went to rumble, but the first couple of times I went, I would get composition scores that were absolutely rubbish. Um, because it turns out I was taking something that was, you know, kick face in hard, um, I just didn't always realize it. Um, so I guess I appreciated it when you guys, were. I was like, why did this happen? And you would go, well, let me explain this to you. Um, so how, as the guy who used to have that conversation with me, um, how did you find that experience?
2: Look, it's, it's always challenging. It's not the conversation you ever want to have because, no. you know, invariably someone's not submitting something that they think will get sent back and said well, oh, can you not bring this? Can you bring something else?
0: Mm-hmm. They're either
2: bringing it because they really, really want to play with, you know, these models that they've bought and painted up or, um, you know, they, you know, similar situation. They, they haven't played that much. Um, they've just asked their friends or, you know, uh, on a forum for some help and they've been handed this list and they've gone, oh, that looks really good. Um, I'll throw that in. A um, couple of things is, you know, setting that expectation, not just the expectation of what you want from players, but in the pack saying, you know, we, we are going to have a composition score. It is going to be judged by, um, in a lot of instances, we outsourced it to make sure that we weren't the ones that were, you know, we found experienced players that weren't coming to the tournament mm-hmm. and said, look, it's going to be done by an independent third party. We're going to trust their judgment on this. Or if we're doing it ourselves, you know, you've got to kind of own it. Um, but also saying that if your list comes back and we don't think it's going to be fair or in the spirit of the event, we are going to ask you to to resubmit it. And players knowing that from the outset is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the second half of that is the the explanation of going, well, this is this is why either you've received a a really low composition score, and I remember a situation there where. You know, a young kid was playing and he was getting his head stomped in. And he came to us at the, the TO table and he goes, Look, I don't understand. I haven't won a game yet. Yet I've got this composition score that's really, really low. Um, why have you said my list is really, really hard? What's going on? And it was literally a case of us going, Oh, because you've got this and this and this. And if you put all those things together, this is what you can do to someone's army really, really early, yeah. and at that point his eyes his eyes lit up, and that's what he did for the next three games. Yeah, um, and he started winning games, um, you know, but it, legitimately people put in lists and don't understand the the potentially the synergies or the mm-hmm. strength of, of what you can do with it. Um, so it is that you know making sure that. They understand why. And at some stage, you do just have to put your foot down and go, well, look, we're judging them all together. You might think that this person's army list is and, – and they're the harder conversations. Are, How come I got this score when person X got a different score? And I yeah. think that their army is harder than mine and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And they're a harder one. And at some point, you kind of have to just stop negotiating. Um Yeah. It, it it's just a case of look, this is the score you've got. If you don't like it, we'll take your feedback on board for next time, but I'm not changing the score, so why are we having this conversation?
0: Yeah. And it, and you do want people to, if they feel um somehow I don't know, um hard done by. You want to make sure that they don't leave um with that, you know, with the feel badsies and they understand why. Um on the other hand, yeah, you, you you gotta be fair and you can't go changing scores mid-event. Um, regardless of how people are doing, um, because player skill is also an element of that, I guess. I, I mean, it's a huge topic. Um, I don't think there's an easy answer for that. But I, as for people who are thinking about running events, you need to be very careful that sometimes people get very upset. I mean, if you think about how much time and effort and money goes into building an army. Um, especially for game systems like, like a Warhammer Fantasy, a King's War, a bolt action, where it takes a significant period of time and money to invest in creating these armies, let alone getting the time away from family, um, getting to the event itself, getting you know free from work obligations so you can do that, especially if you're traveling for the event. You don't want people to show up and then feel like, oh, I got a really negative composition score or... Um, you know, I don't think this part of the, the event is fair. You want them to understand that you're trying to create a fair environment for everyone and you don't want them to leave feeling bad. Um, Pete, you have people coming from all over the, the Eastern seaboard of Australia and and you even had someone coming from the UK at one point. Um, how do you cater for that?
1: Um, in, in terms of the listing, I think uh, the...
0: Yeah. So, Sorry, no, just sort of in general, how do you how do you make sure that people leave feeling good? Um, do, you, do you have any pointers uh, for people who may be thinking about running an event? Sorry, that wasn't a clear question.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, look, I think the the thing, at least on the days, as a TO, you need to be active. You need to be getting around to the tables, seeing how games are going, seeing that... Um, people are are enjoying themselves, that issues aren't cropping up and that um, there's no problems occurring and that games keep moving. Uh, So I think that the thing is that across most of my events are five games over two days. So, you know, people will have some positive and some negative experiences across those five games. But the thing is, I think, as a TO, just to be getting out there and talking to your players and listening to what they're saying. And if you have to make tweaks on the day to fix problems or deal with issues like, you know, bad tables where the, the train's particularly bad, or even if, you know, there's some key rules issue that is cropping up all the time. So yeah, it's about getting around, talking to players during the event and, and making sure things are running smoothly.
0: Yeah. I, I, I really think that, I mean, without fail, I mean, not without fail. I mean, I, it's been a while since I've seen someone have a really emotional response at a tournament or an event, but I definitely can think back to over my literally, God, 30 years of tournament play at this point. Uh, and I've seen some fairly um, emotional people. Um, I think one of the, the key elements for being a tournament organizer is to, um, if somebody is upset, is to not become upset yourself, is to be cool, to be calm and to ask questions so that you fully understand what the player is saying. And if there is something you can do to change that experience, I guess do that, but to also be cognizant that you're not going to, by helping this player overcome an unfair, what they might deem is something that's unfair, um, to also do it in such a way that it doesn't negatively impact other players, um, so that it's fair for everyone. Um, Mouse, what do you think?
2: Yeah, just because one player thinks or feels that something is unfair doesn't necessarily mean it is. Right. Um, So it's about having that conversation. But the other thing is, is uh, the in every instance where I've seen someone have uh, an overly emotional experience at a tournament, it's it's generally not about the actual tournament. It's generally that you yeah. know something else is going on in their real life, yeah. and um, they've tried to get away for the weekend to not think about it, but couldn't sort of you know, disconnect and something's happened in game. And it's just the fact that they're already stressed about something else that they can't do anything about. And it kind of, it bubbles over. Um, so it's, you know, in in most instances, having the conversation, finding out what's going on, because it's probably not just the fact that this guy rolled more sixes than you did. (laughs) Um, and, and trying to, trying to work that out. And, you know, if, you can kind of get them to realize why they're emotional as well. Um, You know, it kind of helps them clamp down and put a lid on that a little bit Mm -hmm. um, and understand that they're not frustrated with the game. It's not the the tournament um, that they're necessarily frustrated with. Um, But it is just about being available and accessible and involved in the games as a TO yourself, you know, getting around, talking to players, seeing what Mm -hmm. they're liking, what they're not liking. And um, I generally don't like changing rules sort of, in between, like mid game. But if you get to the end of game one and someone's had, you know, a really bad experience because of some rule or terrain or something like that, you know, I generally have a list in between games of things I want to tick off and let everybody know about. So everybody's on the same page. Right. Um, so you sort of don't, all right, here's the next game. Here's who you're playing. But before we do that, here's some other things I want to let everybody know about. And it just keeps everybody, on the same page it keeps everything fair and you know everyone feels informed and involved and like you you know kind of care about their experience as well and in most pieces if people think that you care about their experience they're pretty happy with whatever that experience is
0: yeah i definitely agree um I've definitely been um, guilty of letting my emotions from things that are happening outside of an event get into um, my play as an event. I don't think I've ever brought that in necessarily as a TO. God, I hope not. Um, But I I have also seen that in other players. And um, usually, if that is the case, the person will come back maybe five minutes later or ten minutes later and said, look, I'm really sorry, there's... Something going on, and and if you're a tournament organizer, <laughs> not holding a grudge is the big deal. Um, yeah, it's going like, okay, cool, I get it. Like, take a deep breath. We're all good. Um, now go play and have fun because that's the whole purpose of this. Um, now, yeah, I think, yeah, go ahead, Pete.
1: I just jump in there, Brad and Seth. Got to be able to roll with the punches because you know people have bad days, um, and the some people will just want to rant about something or someone. Um, and, you know, you've just got to listen, but also uh, it's, you've got to always remember it's event of how many, however many other people. And um, the bottom line is always that I tell my players that uh, look, I understand, but at the end of the day, I don't expect the two players across the table to like each other or be instant friends, but, You know, what I expect every player to do is play fairly and play like uh, a gentleman and um, be reasonable. And I and if you need me, I'm there. But you know, it's not uh, one person's view isn't isn't going to rule the world.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. I I, so this. It sounds like if you're going to be A tournament organizer. You need to have um, access to a large amount of terrain. Um, You need to be up on your rules um, so that, you know, you can make sure that everyone, you know, if someone has a question, you can answer it. Um, Sounds like you need to have a a small um, psychology degree in order to help people get through their problems. And um, you need to be an Excel whiz. Why would a, why would someone want this job? <laughs> why in the, why in the world would anyone want to be a tournament or event organizer? Um, Pete, you you've run some, I mean, I guess we all have run some fairly large events, if not massive ones. Um, oh, why why
1: why? Uh, yes, I often ask myself that question around this time of
0: year.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> having said that, look there. It, essentially comes down to two reasons. Um, One is because I like playing in events myself and I feel it's kind of unfair to ask other people to organise events for me if I'm not willing to step up and do the same for other people at uh, other times of the year. Um, But I think that just as important is if you love a game, if any game's got a chance of growing or even sustaining itself long-term, there must be a healthy tournament slash event scene associated with it just because you know no matter how good your local scene is you're going to end up playing the same players again with the same armies Mm -hmm. again you're not going to see new things you're not going to see new terrain you're not going to feel challenged after a time you know Unless there is some sort of event or tournament scene, I reckon most games have probably got a shelf life of about 12 to 18 months before you've sort of exhausted your local potential. And tournaments just provide a lot of that excitement. They challenge you to build new lists. And, you know, a lot of my painting is driven by the fact I need to get an army ready for a tournament. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. So just at the end of the day, unless there's a healthy tournament scene... um, or events events scene for a game. I just, it, it's very hard to see how it's going to sustain itself over the longer term. And for the reason that I love bolt action, I want to see it keep growing and not only just growing, you know, getting more manufacturers, making stuff, getting, mm-hmm. um, seeing more armies and being challenged. I have to make that contribution, um, to help feed that and help the game grow.
0: Exactly. Uh, mouse. How about you? Why, why? Why yeah, do look, this to yourself?
2: A, a, a valid question. Um, and I suppose one of the things is is when you line everything up, it seems like a massive deal. You know, you've got to organise all this terrain and get a pack together and start advertising and what do you do about prizes, how are you taking registrations. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these logistical things. And to be honest, I hate dealing with other people's money at at the best of times. Like that's probably the hardest bit I find, because suddenly you know, you're charging someone and they're giving you money and there's an expectation when I give you that money that a it goes to the right place. You're not just pocketing that and running. Right. Um, uh, but B, you know, I you know, they might be paying twenty to fifty bucks for a, an event and there's some expectation that comes with that as well. So I have to suddenly live up to an expectation that not someone's just rocking up and playing, but they've paid for um so uh, there's a lot of that sort of you know seeming pressure but what i've found is people are relatively forgiving um i've run tournaments for um events where maybe it's a new edition of the game you know it's only been out Mm -hmm. for a month and i'm not up to date with the rules completely and at the start of the uh, come and talk to me about rules questions and we'll nut it out but if you really want to know, here are the two or three people that are playing that are spot on with the rules and i will probably going to ask them. Uh, And the community's been fine with that because they know it's a a relatively new game or I'm a relatively inexperienced organiser trying to get terrain together. People are like, well, we want to come and play, so we'll help with that. Um, So there's a lot of that that it actually, you know, it it gets you involved in the community a lot more. Um, It gets you, you know, you probably... Um, get to interact with people that you wouldn't necessarily, unless you run into them at an event and you happen to be playing against them, you may or may not have anything to do with these people, but they're the people who are organizing their gaming clubs or their stores and all this kind of stuff. So you start to build a bigger gaming network, which is really good. Um, and it is that fact that, uh, you know, I I don't necessarily think that you need uh, a tournament scene to sustain a game necessarily, um, but if you're going to grow it, definitely. Um, a tournament, you know, as well as we talked about terrain and models being a, a bit of a spectacle for passers by, the idea that, you know, 20, 50 players are all playing this one game and somebody walks past, um, especially when we've had game sort of events at not at stores or not at traditional gaming venues mm-hmm. when we'd run them at social clubs and stuff. And you get people coming through going, well, what is this? Where did this come from? Oh, my nephew or my grandson would be really interested. Do you mind if I bring him along? Um, that kind of spectacle, or even a couple of people that didn't know about it and have rocked into, to play a game and gone, oh my God, there's so many other people playing this game. This yeah. is, this is amazing. Um, you know, that's how you grow the, the community. Um, so there's that sense of, you know, personal sort of fulfillment for just helping the scene along. The fact that, you know, people are generally really grateful that you've spent the time and effort to run an event. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do get that feedback and you get people coming Oh, you know, I'd really like to come You know, next time you run something. Can you let us know? We'll bring mm-hmm. our friends. Um, so that's really, really good. And I'm a control freak at, at heart. So, um, if I want, to, to run an event. I kind of, I run it my way. Um, I like to be across everything. Um, and to be honest, the first time I did it, it was a case of, well, all these other people can do it. How, how hard can it be? Let's, let's just give it a shot. Yeah. Um, and it can be a relatively small thing to, you know, it can be as big or as small as you want it to be. You can run an event. And it's, you know, 10, 15 people just to get your head around the logistics of how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it is that thing that is as big and complex as you let it become, I think. Um, and what we're talking about in a lot of this and the complexity suddenly is when you're talking 50, 100 player events, they get bigger, they get harder, and you probably don't want to necessarily do it all by yourself. Um, yeah. But
0: <laughs> anything more than 15, 20 people, I'm, I, I like to have help. But yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, I uh, sort of did... Uh, 24 last year which was just over 50 players did that solo and that was probably stretching the friendship and if i hadn't have run a number of tournaments before i would have been uh struggling so um just having a couple of people to help double check data and stuff like that suddenly yeah. makes it fetch you beer you know that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um makes it a massive thing but it is it, like when you finish a hobby project you do get that sense of achievement after running an event too always so it's not like it's completely um you know thankless it's not like you're not getting anything
0: out of it exactly and uh, for me it's always been i really like TOing in that when i when i go to events and as a player um i mean clearly you see the the people's armies that are across from you and there's always the opportunity if it's one of those events that has maybe a painting a best painted score there'll be a time where you can usually walk around and check out people's armies Um, but you don't always not everyone sets out their army maybe they didn't paint it so they don't put it out Um, I've always found as a TO just being able to walk around um, as you guys were talking about you know watching games watching people play Um, as we used to say when I used to help out at the grand tournaments Um, you know, do the old politician thing of shaking hands and kissing babies, um, being seen, being around, being able to answer people's questions. But during that time, you can really... I mean, I find that's the inspiring thing for me, looking at the people, the way people have built their armies and the way they're playing with them, and then looking at all of the armies on the tabletops, even the ones that aren't put out, um, and seeing the way that they work and the people move them around... um, it, it, it has helped me as a player, um, and it just reminds me what a good scene looks like um, and how much fun it can be just to watch people play games. Um, now, I mean, clearly playing games is usually a lot more fun than that, but um, I've learned a lot by watching people play, um, and it, even if it's a game that I know a lot about. Um, and I, I, I love that about it. Um, but the reason why I run events... Um, most recently, the events that I've run um, have been for bolt action. And when I first started running bolt action events, it was no one else was doing it. Um, the Melbourne scene didn't exist. Um, and so the LRDG podcast put together um, the very first event, Field of Dreams, I believe it was called, a million years ago. And it was essentially us. And Dano from the bolt action radio flew over from his secret base um, somewhere in the Middle East. And Um, Brian flew in from Sydney and Anthony drove in from uh, rural Victoria and that was the tournament and it was what eight people Um, but it was a great way to get um, our head around running a bolt action event because we'd run I mean between Dave and myself um, and even Lachlan we'd run um, countless Warhammer 40k and fantasy events up until that point but it was the first time that we did the bolt action thing. Um, if you're running an event, um, I usually find it's good practice to get together with three of your mates. All you need are four or four players. Get four players together. You could be one of them to, to dry run it. Um, but just play three games in the course of a day and have a, you know, three tables set out. Now, you might say three tables. How does that work with four players? Well, that way that you can everyone gets a chance to play. You don't have repeat tables. Um, but just everyone plays the other person once. So player one plays player two, then player three, then player four over the course of the day. Everyone's played a different player each time. Everyone's played on a different table each time. And it gives you a chance to really, at the, at a very small level, control what's going on, but to get an idea of what you need to do to prepare and just to be prepared for on the day. Um, I, don't, I don't know. That's That was, I mean, Pete, you kind of jumped in and was running... Like fifty-player events, pretty much as your first event, weren't you, or am I making that up?
1: No, I um, took over the Bolt Action CanCon and Wintercon um, from the previous organisers who uh, had were moving on to something else. So yeah, I inherited a I guess a a large, fully functioning event of I think it was about up to thirty players when I took it over. So yeah, I sort of jumped in with both feet, and uh, I learned by doing and Doing some things well and doing some things badly, but uh, yeah. So I, I started at the top end of the town.
0: Would would you recommend a dry run, or are you do you sort of think that the trial by fire is um, is the way to go?
1: Um, look, if I had it over, I'd probably start with some you know some smaller local sorts of things. But the up the upside is, I guess that. Um, it was a it was a great community. So people were very forgiving, and um, it, there is a certain amount of excitement with running a, a big event. Um, as Mouse said, ha- seeing all those players and all those armies out, it gives the TO as much enthusiasm as it does the players. So um, it's perhaps not how I'd recommend starting, but um, I certainly wouldn't discourage someone if. Um, you're looking to take over or or start a big event um, from from trying that, but I, I would just reinforce, I guess, uh, what you said, Brad. I think that um, anything more than about uh, certainly 30 players, you you need someone to help you out. If only, for, particularly if you're going to be running a Gumby army. There's no way you can play with more than about 20 players and still manage an event. So, yeah, um, yeah definitely look to get yourself some help. I think that was probably the, the the one thing I did wrong when I when I leaped in first time. I didn't have any help and um, I was trying to juggle it all myself. And, um, yeah, when you're in that 20 to 30-plus players, you definitely need someone just to help you out, if only to play the, um, the Gumby Army if you've got an odd number of players.
0: I think the uh, mouse. Did you want to add anything before we talk gumbies?
2: No, uh, they're a good thing. Uh, even if you don't run it, it, get a chance to you know do a dry run. Though I remember the first time I ever pulled up some some tournament software and just literally put some dummy names in and and ran through the process of yeah. running an event in the software.
0: Good job.
2: Um, So I didn't didn't necessarily, and it was just a, what happens if a player pulls out for some reason, you know, they can't make day two. How do I do that? How do I add someone in if that happens? Um, You know, if I, if I those kind of little things, if I need to change a score, how do I go back and change a score to a previous uh, game? And just going through all those what if scenarios in the software. So it's not a surprise on the day um, is probably the sort of tip I'd give. If you can't do a full dry run. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I I always have people record their, Results on paper. Um, I know there's lots of different ways to do it. I usually prefer to have all of the event on one piece of paper, and then you you hand that piece of paper back to the players, and they fill it out as for their games over the course of the weekend. Um, and I find by doing that, in case something goes, you know, it it literally hasn't happened yet, knock on wood, but... If, if, God forbid, something happened with the software and you lost all your results, you have all of the results on paper and you can re-enter it if you absolutely have to. Um, but that's just me having lost um, one too many papers in university and having to rewrite them. I, I'm a chronic saver and backer-upper of everything I can get. Um, and I don't want to screw up people's scores. So, A, I want to make sure that they're right on the paper. And, B, I want to make sure I type them in right. Um, but, yeah. Big time. Now, you did, uh, Mass, you talked about taking people's money for things earlier, and I thought that Mm -hmm. you saying that was hilarious, um, given that the Twatafo this year had some of the best prizes of any event I have literally ever seen. Um, For those of you who don't know, and I know I talked about it on an old LRDG cast. Um, not only did mouse provide, um, players with objective markers, um, and little movement widgets that were made out of clear perspex, um, with the event and the date and all of that on there, fully labeled. That was amazing, but that was just the beginning. You then made, um, literally, um, uh, four, was it three by three or four by four? It's three by three, right? Yeah. Three by three game mats, um, not just one, two different varieties, a snowy one and a green one with the Malifaux markings on them that are beautiful, made out of mousepad material, um, and everyone who played got one. And then, as if that wasn't enough, you had a—you got Weird's permission, Weird Miniatures being the makers of Malifaux's permission to make 8-bit caricatures of all of their masters and put them on cards that people play with. Unbelievable. Like, th- that was a level of taking people's money and then spending it, but you would have had to have spent thousands of your own dollars literally in advance and hoped that you recouped your costs. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that that was the, uh, the scary bit about the way I went around it last year is, um, you know, just production lead times and stuff like this. I worked out that, you know, with the expected players that I I had sort of, I I would expect to show up that I could recoup any of the costs, but I couldn't do that until people had paid registration. So I kind of had to outlay and hope. And to be honest with the, the gaming mats, that was done via a production company in China, which was the only way I could get it done within the costs and budgets and everything. And there was a big, you know, phase there of i've just transferred a lot of money overseas and i'm not sure if anything's coming back <laughs> um so no there was pressure some involved yeah. Yeah, there was some sweating involved in that one, um, but you know, it was one of those things that I keep seeing. Um, you know, sort of overseas events, and they've got custom fate decks, and they've got you know stuff. People have got mementos for attending. It's not just the memories as well. There's a, a physical reminder of I've shown up, and whether it's measuring widgets or some markers or mm-hmm. objective markers or or something like that. Malifaux, um is relatively lucky in that you know the, the fate deck is. Pretty iconic to the game, mm-hmm. um, and one of those things that realistically, it, it's some some pictures on a card, so you can do whatever you want. Um, it's uh, getting permission from weird. Added some extra complexity, but you know, there, there's no reason you could do that with you know just whatever images you thought looked pretty as well. Um, so, yeah, there there was a little bit of uh, sort of sweating in advance for, for that year. I'm trying to minimize that risk as much as I can uh, for future ones. That was probably a, a one-off and more stress than I need to put myself through. <laughs> but, um, yeah. yeah, no, it, w- it worked out, so I'll take it.
0: Right on. Yeah, I know um, Bolt Action, typically um, what's been happening with those recently with a lot of the events is there's um, – you know, custom painted trophies, um, and then prize support from the manufacturers themselves, um, which is always incredibly generous. The amount of prize support that um, bolt action events tend to get from the variety of World War II miniature manufacturers, particularly from War and Peace Games here in Australia um, and Warlord itself, um, Warlord Games makers of you know bolt action and Conflict Forty Seven. Um, Pete, um, how how do you do you? I mean, I know that mouse i know you also do trophies um i've always been i like a trophy um like getting more toy soldiers is nice but i like something to take away and i find that mementos are good for that um pete what do you think about i mean how do you feel about trophies versus prize support how does that all factor in when you're planning an event
1: yeah it can be one of the more stressful parts of the whole to experience Um, yeah i The challenge I face is that, um, you know, so I do WinterCon and CanCon, which are actually, I don't organise the conventions itself, so they're organised by the Canberra Games Society, and um, they they organise and pay for the venue, so we buy tickets through them for our events. Now, the challenge is that those tickets can be quite expensive, so for the last couple of years, to ensure that we get the maximum number of players, I've kept the prize support part to a minimum, like, I think last year it was 10 bucks, And this year, because there was a price rise on the the ticket-slash-venue costs, I, I'm not um, collecting any prize money at all. So I'm completely reliant on the generosity of um, sponsors, which um, is not my... You know, I'm a bit of an introvert, so going round and, and having to ask for prizes is not my funnest thing to do. Um, fortunately, I've got a good group of sponsors who have continued to... Um, sponsor the bolt action events long term Um, so they've been really great and generous and you've mentioned war and peace and dice of war and wartime minis um they've all been great sponsors but um yeah i find a challenging part and particularly as the event grows larger i mean the expectation and has always been that everyone who enters a bolt action event gets a prize and we've managed to do that every event so far but you know, as these events get bigger and bigger and also just as the games get longer in the tooth, um, it can be harder to find sponsors. And so it, it becomes a bit more challenging every year. And, uh, you know, I always try and make sure we, we everyone gets a prize. But, yeah, it can get hard. On the issue of trophies... Um, my approach has tended to be that you know I've done it in different styles over the years. Sometimes I've used prize money to buy trophies. Um, some you know I've had laser cut um, things in the past, but um, I think really where I've I've landed at the moment is that I generally do sort of framed um, you know, certificates of mm-hmm. uh, you know, first, second, third, whatever. I just find that's simple, works well, and it. Uh, allows people to, you know, particularly where you've got people travelling to an event, um, a big trophy can be great. But um, you know, if you're flying in from, say, New Zealand or somewhere further afield, they, yeah. they they can honestly be a bit of a pain in the ass to lug around. So most people just seem to appreciate, uh, you know, a framed certificate. Um, I try and you know, obviously, I try and do them something nice with some, with some sort of relevant picture or propaganda poster, and that's generally how I go these days.
0: Yeah, I guess the, if you're running an event and um, you aren't necessarily resourced, um, as gamers, we tend to have a lot of spare toy soldiers floating around. It just it comes with the territory. Um, I was given a bunch of Flames of War tanks uh, a while ago, uh, and they just sat in a box in my closet. And I was like, I'm not really a Flames of War player. I like World War II stuff. Um, But then I found a use for all those tanks as trophy toppers. Um, I literally just took, um, took those tanks, and I painted them gold, and I put a nice sapier wash on top of them. And I literally put them on top of trophies that I got from um savers a local second hand shop that had a giant selection of trophies um they had a bunch of matching bottoms i took the guys bowling off the top um put the other tanks on top um and then you know put little tags on the bottom and sure enough look trophies um and it was very simple and i was worried that players would look down their nose at it but everyone loved it um and it was a simple it was a little different than you know wasn't but it looked like a trophy and people were like, Oh, this is great. Um, because I because I spent a lot on the venue, because um I, I was also reliant on um prizes from vendors. I just didn't have the money to spend on big laser cut um trophies for those events because I was they were very small. I was trying to keep things local. Um just spending literally a couple of bucks on the trophy bottoms, um, and then using Toy Soldiers that I already had for the tops it was no problem. It was easy. Um, and if you are running an event and you're concerned, you don't have anything to give a player. It literally took me a couple of hours to paint some things gold to let them, you know, spray paint them black, paint them gold, give them a wash. And by a couple of hours, I mean, realistically it took, it was over a couple of hours, but I spent five minutes spraying, let it dry five minutes, you know, putting the gold on, and then let it dry and then five minutes putting the sapier on and then gluing the damn thing together and handing it out on the day and it made players happy um and just a little bit prior planning and a little thinking outside the box goes a long way if you are um a tournament organizer uh mouse uh i believe you wanted to uh, bring it home um what would you like to discuss sir Yeah, it was
2: just that, um, you know, obviously we're talking about organising events and potentially for people looking at doing it for the first time and it was just that kind of thought that it is, you know, jumping in the deep end is, you know, a a little bit intimidating at times. Um, The first thing I'd say is if you're going to events – have a chat to the guys running it, you know, it just you get a really inherent sense of what you like, what you dislike, you know, what worked, what you think didn't work. Um, but secondly, just having a chat to guys that are already doing it, I think most people running events are keen to see more events run by other people because it means they don't have to do every all of them. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd be happy and I'd, I'd argue that most people running events would be pretty happy to either – Help out, give advice, mm-hmm. um, you know, just tips and tricks, and, and all those kind of things where they can. If someone came to me and said, "Hey, I want to run a Malifaux event. Here's five or six tables of terrain, and here's what you need to think about, and let me know what I can do to help." Um, so just chatting to people doing it and and that kind of thing can, firstly, make it easier for you, but secondly, help get around that initial intimidation of, oh, there are there is some support. If something goes pear-shaped or if I don't know what to do, or mm-hmm. there's just people to talk through ideas. So I think yeah, if it's one of those things that you are sort of umming and ahhing about, just the conversation with a couple of people that you know that have already done it is uh, probably goes a long way to to help settle the nerves and, and get you some sort of support.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just if you get to that, as you're saying, if things start to go pear-shaped, um, again, uh, keep calm. Think outside the box um, and be prepared. I know for CanCon a couple of years ago, um, I was playing in the Warhammer Fantasy event. I think it was a h- 120 players. Um, so met 60 tables. And um, one of the missions for that was called the Watchtower. And you had to play in and around a Watchtower. Well, the people who were supposed to bring the Watchtowers didn't. Um, for whatever reason. And so all of a sudden in order to play that mission, you need to have this building on the tabletop and you needed 60 of them. And I think they had five. Um, and so they needed to actually resolve that issue. And, um, I know one of the Hampton guys is a terrain guy and he, you know, was talking to the TO organizer or the tournament organizer and said, Hey, um, what if you took a piece of paper and rolled it into a, you know, a cylinder shape? And you happen to have what looks like a castle printed on the outside. That works. And it was a little thing. They literally went home, printed 70 pieces of paper because they wanted to have extras. And they bought a container of, you know, scotch tape and, you know, one of those little dispensers and taped it all up, put it down. Was it perfect? No. But were all of those players able to play that mission? Did everyone have the same watchtower? Damn skippy. Um, So it's... Rather than having to go without and having to make excuses, these things, the solution was found, things were played, uh, and everyone had a good time. And people talk about it. I mean, I heard someone talking about it the other day, and someone was like, oh, well, you know, it was rolled up paper, blah, blah, blah. But once it's on the table and it it looked like a tower, it's a tower, and you can play the mission. So, you know, don't beat yourself up if you have to think outside the box to solve a, you know a little problem happens. Um, solve the problem, get on it, and make sure that your players have a fun time. I think that's my big takeaway from that. Um, Pete, any final words on the subject?
1: Uh, no, just uh, to mention, there are still some places left for Bolt Action, I think two, and for the A K- 47 events, Gank On. So um, if you're listening to this before January the 25th, sign up and come along. We'd love to see you.
0: Oh, God, yeah. And if you haven't ever been to an event that either of these gentlemen have run, they are tight ships. These are experienced tournament organizers who know what they're doing. And I've, you know, I've literally played in events that both of them have run, and they are fantastic times. Um, so please, if you are in the Melbourne area um, and Mouse is running a Malifo event or any other event, I might add, get there. Um, and if you happen to be in the Canberra area and Pete's running something – Please go to it. Um, be it Bolt Action, be it Conflict Forty Seven, and of course, now Pete, you've bumped out. We talked about this on episode five. You've you've keep growing the Bolt Action event. How many players are you up to? You on 58? Six, 68 players,
1: sixty eight. So two, yeah, two spots to go.
0: Boom. Well, I hope you get there, sir. And knowing you, you will, and then probably steal three tables from the people next door. Um
1: <laughs> but you know. Possibly. <laughs> possibly just
0: invade it like Poland. Uh and ooh, I didn't that. So <laughs> ah, awkward. Um <clears throat> Mouse, um any final words?
2: No, I'm just going to have to echo the, um, you know, the the bit of a plug at the the end of this. Um, So, yeah, 24 is sort of the the flagship event I'll be running in March 10 next year down at House of War in Ringwood. Um, There's going to be as many spots as people are willing to fill. So uh, feel free to get along and I'll, I'll keep plugging that as we go along.
0: Yes. And I should mention that when Mouse was talking about the venue that had all of the tables that people could play on, Um, had all the terrain set up and is just really well resourced. He is, of course, talking about House of War, which is a fantastic local event um, venue um, that if you haven't been out there, you should. It's it's something special. It's a really cool game store slash event space. Um, And now that I'm done with my master's, I'm hoping to actually get out there a hell of a lot more often. Um, it being not near the city center. But I would like to take a second to thank a listener of the show, Paul. Um, He recommended the topic of talking to um, TOs and event organizers. Um, It was a great idea, and he sent a few over, and I plan on using all of them. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, Giant shout out there. Um, If you have listened to this and you would like to respond in any way, shape, or form, um, again, we love feedback. Please find us uh, on Facebook. If you type Cast Dice, C-A-S-T Dice, um, into the old Facebook, you can find Land O Misfit Toys slash Home of the Cast Dice Podcast. That's my um, personal hobby blog, and that is where I receive all feedback from the show. Um, if you have anything nice to say, please send it. Um, I do do this by myself, so it's lovely to um, hear that people are listening. Uh, If you have a gripe or something that you think could be done better, uh, I have gotten a lot of those in the past, and they have been incorporated into the show. Feedback is great, guys. Uh, And gals, please keep sending it. Uh, I would like to also say uh, at the end of last episode, um, I did wish everyone a very happy, safe, um, and lovely holidays. If for some reason you didn't hear that... um, Please let me take this opportunity again to wish you uh the happiest, safest and um yeah, just just an excellent beginning to 2018 and holiday season. Um I hope that made sense. Now, uh story time with old man moran uh, will be coming soon. Uh my wife and I are listening to some audiobooks to prepare for uh one of those episodes. Uh but coming up very soon Uh, We have quite a few gaming episodes coming as well. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything because I'm still lining up guests, but um, there will be one of the new games from Warlord Games discussed with the folks from Warlord. There will be more Conflict 47 content coming very soon, um, as will more Gaslands and games played. Um, If there is something that you would like us to discuss on this podcast, um, again, please send us a message and... I would like to say thank you, thank you, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all have a good night.